When Stan, Kathy, and his fiance decided to get married, they realized they had some cleaning up to do. Each of them went to their respective garages and cleaned out the contents and took all that they had down to the Goodwill store for them to dispose of, along with all kinds of old clothes and uh, white elephant gifts and tools and bicycles and such, they gave away a tattered yellow poster that had been hanging in Stan's garage for they didn't know how many years. They turned this into the Goodwill shop, and sometime later, a guy named Michael Sparks wandered into that same shop. He began to browse the aisles. When his eye lit upon that tattered, yellowed poster that Stan Caffey had left behind, and because of Michael Sparks' background, he recognized it as something special. He went to the uh, shop owner and asked him how much he wanted for that poster. Kathy was willing to pay a tremendously large amount. $2.48, and it's yours, said the Goodwill shop owner. And laying out the change, uh, Sparks took the poster home. As you may have guessed, it turned out that this was not just an old poster. It was an extremely rare copy of the Declaration of Independence printed in 1823. The document that Mr. Sparks purchased for pocket change, $2.48, fetched $477,650 at auction shortly thereafter. What do you suppose Stan Caffey and his fiancée or that Goodwill shop owner would have given to have known what they had in their hands. And what, I wonder, would we give if we really understood what we have in ours? In our text for today, Jesus tells us the story of two people who make a sudden discovery. One is a man who stumbles across a treasure hidden in a field. He is not apparently even looking for this treasure. He's just on his way someplace else when I guess his foot must kick something in the grass. He stops, he looks down, he recognizes this is something extraordinarily valuable. And when he finds it, nothing can stop him from protecting it and then doing what is necessary to make it his very own, the Scripture says. The other is a merchant who is actually looking for valuable things. Jesus says he's looking for fine pearls when suddenly he comes across a particular pearl more magnificent than any he has ever seen before. And like the first man, he goes to lavish lengths in order to obtain it. The two men, in other words, come across opportunity in very different ways. One isn't even looking for it at all. He just stumbles on it. And the other is actively searching for something of great value. But both of these men claim the prize in the same way. One sold all, the Bible says. The other sold everything to purchase this prize. 
the kingdom of heaven is like this, says Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like this in the sense that some people are actively searching for it. And some people just stumble upon it. And what they do with it makes all the difference. In the first and most important sense, I suppose, it is God who is the main character of this story. When we read these kinds of parables, we're tempted to insert ourselves into the text immediately. We read the story of the Good Samaritan, for example, and we put ourselves in the story. We read the prodigal son, and we imagine what it would be like to be a father or a mother, like the figure that we see described there. And yet, the main purpose of these parables, in most cases, is to tell us about the heart of God. God is the Good Samaritan. God is the father of the prodigal. And in this particular story, in a sense, God is the man in each of these tales. God regards people as treasures to be prized and protected. It's God who views those who will turn their heart to him as the magnificent pearl to be prized above everything else. This is a great theme of the Bible itself. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, way back at the beginning, God says this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my command, my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Deuteronomy 14 and verse 2 declares a little later on, Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you as to be his treasured possession. The message of the gospel in the New Testament follows a similar thread line. We're constantly being told that God so cherishes you and me that he's willing to pay a very profound price to bring us to himself, even the price of dying on a cross to make us his own. Paul puts it this way, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich beyond compare, He became poor. He gave it all up. He sold everything that he had that we might become rich, that we might be freed from sin and death, made part of his eternal kingdom and family. The first message of this parable is that God prizes you as his treasured possession, as the one he longs for and searches after and seeks to take home to his heart. But there there is also a sense in which we've got to see ourselves like the men that we find in this parable of Jesus as well. Whether we're just stumbling upon it for the very first time or whether we've been looking for this truth purposely for a very long time, it is vital that we see that a relationship with God is the greatest treasure in life's field. God is the supreme pearl to be cherished amidst the oyster of suffering. Sometimes we go through terribly painful times in life. Some of you are going through those terrible times right now. And maybe amidst this awful season of life, a discovery of God's presence with you will become the pearl 
that somehow redeems something of the abrasion and the difficulty of this season of your life. God is the premier prize that gives meaning and direction to our use of all of the other treasures of this life. For many years I lived in a community in Southern California that is amongst the wealthiest in the United States. I mean, per capita, it just would blow your mind how much resource people had. And yet the stunning thing for me time and again was how many people in that community struggled to even know what to do with all they had, to find meaning in all they had. Jesus, the relationship we have with him, provides us with the capacity to see in fresh and clear ways how we are meant to use all of the resources and the opportunities of life. As the Apostle Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As the writer of Proverbs urges, we're wise to search for this relationship with Christ as for hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God, says the writer of Proverbs. Though it costs all you have, get this understanding for yourself. Get this relationship with God for yourself, says King Solomon, who had tried everything, who had had all material wealth and found at the end of his days that it was this relationship with his God that was the most precious prize of all. This, I think, is the pinch for us. This is the struggle that many of us have. Most of us are reasonably willing to accept the idea, uh, the first idea that comes from this parable, that we are treasured possessions. We actually like that idea, that, that, that we, each of us, is so valuable to God that he would be willing to pay the supreme price to, to purchase us, to, to bring us to himself. But, but the second implication of the story is the one that I think is more of a stumbling block or a place of struggle for a lot of us. I know it is for me. The question here is what price are we willing to pay to gain the prize of knowing him intimately? Of not just knowing about God, but knowing God. What's the price we're willing to pay for that kind of a relationship? What price will we pay to hold in our hands to really have it at our disposal the pearls of his wisdom? What price or investment are we willing to make to see his kingdom move through our lives with greater power than that kingdom is moving in us and through us right now? As Tracy Bianchi reminded some of us last week, there is this 10,000-hour rule to all the greatest gains. In other words, the world will keep selling to us these shortcuts to success, these fast-track, painless, easy-bake ways to bliss. But deep down we know that you don't get the great things of life without paying a price, without making an investment, without putting in the 10,000 hours or the equivalent of, of, of commitment. You do not get a prosperous career. You don't create a great nation. You don't develop healthy kids. You don't have a flourishing friendship or a great marriage or artistic or athletic excellence without this willingness to pay what? A price. A price. Similarly, says Jesus, entering the kingdom of God, experiencing his life-changing love, being used as an agent of that kingdom has a cost. Has a cost. 
Well, what is that cost? What really is the cost that Christ asks us to pay in pursuit of the blessing he offers? Let me hit quickly on three dimensions of it. First, gaining the life of God's kingdom requires a costly humility. You cannot receive all that God wants to give you as long as you are God, as long as you are the one who owns it all and sits in the driver's seat. This is, for me, one of the hardest lessons. I'm never done learning it for myself. After all of these years, I'm stunned by how much I still care about looking good more than being good. After all of these years, it, it, it actually humiliates me to recognize how consumed I still get with defending myself rather than trying to discern those parts of myself that need dismantling, that need utter renovation and change. It's my lack of humility that blocks me from entering into that deeper life of God that Jesus is talking about. And maybe I'm not alone. I think that we need to know that our true worth and identity comes not from our performance, not from our possessions, not from our appearance, not from our position. Our true identity and worth needs to come from the knowledge that we are his treasured possession, that we are his prize, that we are his beloved children. And every time criticism comes your way, raise your hand if you've ever been criticized if people have ever found fault in you. Every time failure comes your way, raise your hand if you've ever really messed up in some area of life. Every time loss and tragedy and heartache comes your way, the temptation is to look at this as the worst possible thing that could happen to you. And yet every one of those experiences is this glorious opportunity to embrace that your ultimate identity and your ultimate sufficiency is in him alone. And that because of what he feels about you and what he longs to do with you, there is is nothing that can happen to you. Nobody can strip away anything on the surface of your life that will ever take away the reality of your precious treasured identity in him. We will never know the peace and the joy of life that is possible, the kind that marks the lives of the greatest of Christ's followers until we let all of the painful experiences of our life strip us away of everything but dependence upon him. And once that is done, nothing can get to us again. Nothing can really destroy us or wound us that deeply again. Humility is costly, but it is the way to a greater joy. True discipleship requires, secondly, a costly obedience. If there is one word Americans hate, it's obedience. If there's one thing that we independence-obsessed people deplore, it's the call to obedience. 
And yet Jesus is very clear that to find his way, we must obey. We must walk away that we might not otherwise have chosen to go. What is that way? Well, Jesus is clear about what he commands. He says, repent of sin. Find those parts of your life that are separate from what God has called you to be about. Turn away from them, walk away from them, move in the other direction. Remain in me, Jesus says. Take pains, develop a process, get some practices in your life so you're staying connected to me between the times you hang out in the building with a steeple on top. Make sure you're remaining in me all day long. Pray. Pray without ceasing, says Jesus. Let's have an open online chat that goes on all day long with one another so that I can lead your life with you. Pursue heavenly treasure, Jesus commands. Trust my provision. Be very merciful and forgiving. Do good to your enemies. Rest. Seek reconciliation. Care for the least. These are the things that Jesus commands us to obey. This is what living in the kingdom of God looks like. It's a very challenging way to live. Raise your hand or at least an eyebrow if you've noticed this is a challenging way to live, right? This is a very different kind of way to live than other people are living their lives. It's, it's so challenging, it seems kind of narrow in many ways. In fact, Jesus says it is a narrow way. It's a narrow gate. It's a tough road to walk which is why so few people find it, says Jesus. Strive for the kingdom, nonetheless, he says. On a scale from one to five, where one equals hardly at all, and five equals completely devoted, where are you in terms of your obedience? You're willing to pay the price of obedience. To the way of Jesus. A mother was preparing pancakes for her sons, Kevin, five years old, Ryan, three years old, when a fight broke out over uh, who would get to eat the first pancake. This would never happen in your house, right? <laughs> I have three boys. Seeing an opportunity for a moral lesson, the mom says, look, guys, settle down. Think about this. If Jesus were here, Imagine Jesus right here at the table. He would say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. Wow, this really seemed to get to the boys. Kevin, the older one, turned to his younger brother and he said, okay, Ryan, you can be Jesus. Yeah. We laugh, but you know, this is it, right? This scenario tells it all. I mean, it's one thing to talk about the value of humility and the importance of obedience. But what happens when discipleship requires sacrifice? And it does. The way of the kingdom of God Following the way of Jesus requires a costly sacrifice. 
And I know that looks too hard at times to us. In fact, I, I remember back in the days when I would hear people preaching and calling pe- me to become a disciple of Jesus, and I was going to, oh, you know, I'd, have to become a, I'd have to go to Africa or me, be a missionary. I'd have to you know, throw it all down on the altar for God, and I just couldn't bear the idea of giving up everything and changing so much. And, and it looks that way to us sometimes. We hear the call of Jesus to follow after him. To paraphrase the great southern preacher Fred Craddock, it feels like Jesus is calling us sometimes to cash it all in. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a million-dollar bill our entire life and laying it all down on the table, all down on the altar for him, and saying to him, here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all to you. And on one level, that's exactly what he's calling us to do. On one level, that is ultimately what he wants us to do. Trust me with your life. I gave it to you in the first place. You won't be disappointed with what I do with it. But the actual way it works itself out, says Craddock, who, by the way, is this very old southern preacher with a wonderful heart. The way it works itself out, Craddock, is much more like this. Christ sends us to the bank with the millions in grace that he's poured out to us. And he has us take all that grace, that million-dollar check or bill, and cash it all in for quarters. And then he calls us to go out into the world, into our daily lives, and to put out 25 cents of that grace here and 50 cents of it over there. Listen to the neighbor's kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost. Go to the committee meeting and be my presence. Hang out in school with my friends and don't do the backstabbing thing, but stand up for those who are beaten down. Give a cup of water here. Give a helping hand there. Sacrifice this particular possession to that particular purpose. Sacrifice that desire of mine in this situation here, to the needs of others there. Sacrifice our position or opinion on this to his wiser one or, or our schedule to his timing or your plan to my perfect one, says Jesus. Usually giving our life to Christ, says Craddock, doesn't mean going out in a flash of glory like those martyred missionaries we may have heard about or idealize or fear we're being called to become. Instead, it's done in all of these little acts of humility and obedience and sacrifice. But you know what? Sometimes you put down just $2.48 and find yourself in possession of something infinitely more valuable, a veritable declaration of independence from what has been chaining us in this life. You give what you can along the way and you find yourself in possession of an identity rooted in him that nobody can take away. 
You keep spending and investing yourself in the things of God's kingdom and you discover you're suddenly holding a way of handling relationships and resources that is truly beautiful and good. You keep pouring out this small change in a sense and you find yourself over time amassing a self-giving love like God's himself. Only in the eyes of the blind is humility and obedience and sacrifice the road of losers. For those disciples that have dared to walk the way of Jesus, they know that these ways of spending ourselves, of losing ourselves, are in fact the road to joy. Remember, it was in his joy that the man in the parable went and sold all he had to purchase the prize. He wasn't trading down. He was trading up. The writer of Hebrews says that it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross, despising its shame, knowing that the Father would lift him high above every name. So let us run our lives in such a way, says St. Paul, as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games, he writes, goes into strict training. And as humility and obedience and sacrifice requires ongoing training. These people competing in the worldly games, they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown, to get a field, to hold the pearl, to possess the declaration of our freedom, to enter the life of the kingdom, and that will last forever. What is that prize worth to you? Please pray with me. Lord our God, we, we are awestruck when we take in that you have actually deemed us so prize-worthy to have paid the ultimate price to set us free and to draw us into your family. Move us, we pray, by gratitude for that and by admiration for the example of your Son, that in humility, obedience, and sacrifice, we might press on toward the goal to gain the prize for which God has called us into his kingdom through Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.